All right, no more than two people per table. Okay, that's the rule. <laughs> Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, we just ask you that you would bless this time of study, um, and that as we look at uh, what is mercy to the poor, that you would really bless us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so um, just to do a very, very quick recap of uh, what we were looking at last week. We saw that helping the poor is both a matter of justice, a mercy, and justice, right? <laughs> and we typically think of these two things as being opposed to each other. Um, but we saw from last week, right, that um, helping the poor um, is not just merely a matter of, of, of extending them mercy, but it's doing justice for them, right? that uh, their poverty, the fact that they lack, um, is fundamentally an, uh, an injustice, right? And so let's just quickly look at two verses that kind of show this. Isaiah 117. Can I have Harry read that for us? Sure. Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, seek the widow's cause. Yeah, seek justice. Um, and what does that mean? It means to fight oppression, it means to love the orphans. It means to plead, um, advocate for widows, right? And notice there that orphans and widows, um, what they have in common is that they're powerless in society, right? They can't fend for themselves. And so the fact that they can't fend for themselves renders them very vulnerable and it lends to uh, poverty. But the fact that orphans are poor and the fact that widows are poor, how is that their fault? It's not. It's merely... Um, a factor of the fact that they don't have a father, they don't have a husband. And so to fight for them, to advocate for them, to, to help them, is not just being merciful, it is that, but it's giving them justice. Okay? Let's look at uh, Micah 6, 8. Um, Eric, can you read that for us? He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Yeah, um... It's a very famous verse. So it says, do justice, and then it's to love mercy, right? And the way Hebrew works, and it's walk humbly, and the way Hebrew works is that these are not three different separate categories or activities, but they're all expressions or ways of doing the exact same thing. So that the same action is loving mercy, doing justice, walking humbly, right? So these two things is one and the same. Does that make sense? And we typically think of them as separate, but they're really, uh, in a biblical worldview, the same thing or integrated. Right? And that's, I think, pretty deep, pretty profound. Um, it's certainly not what uh, we typically think of in, in our culture. Uh, any quick questions on that? So that's just a review from last week. And then we looked at how there is the mercy aspect as well, right? We haven't, we're not going to really look at mercy too much through this series, but it's still a very important thing. So Deuteronomy 10, um, Christina, or no, Rachel, can I have you read? For the Lord your God is God, um, of gods, and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial, who is not right, but right. He exercises the bottomless and the widow, and loves the sojourner, All right, um, sojourner is kind of an awkward, um, clunky word. Um, and so what is a sojourner? What's a modern equivalent of a sojourner today? 
Do you guys remember what we talked about last week? Sojourner. Yes, an immigrant, right? And so we're supposed to love the immigrant, right? We're supposed to give him food and clothing. Why, verse 19, we're supposed to love the immigrant, the sojourner, because you were once immigrants or sojourners in the land of Egypt, right? There was once a time when you were in a foreign land and no one treated you well. Everyone said, oh, a foreigner, you know, and treated you poorly. But God gave you mercy. And because God gave you mercy as a sojourner, you ought, also ought to give mercy to other sojourners, right? And so that's really just like redoing the drama, to, uh, the, the, the gospel to others, right? So that's mercy. Any quick questions on that? All right, so let's move on, right? So that's review from last week. This week we're going to look at um, Old Testament Israel. Very interesting. So point number two, in Old Testament Israel, is, uh, old, in the Old Testament, Israel was supposed to be a nation where the poor would not suffer want because society and laws were just and equitable. Okay? This is really interesting, right? Um, the land of Israel, right, the way God structured all the Old Testament laws was that there was supposed to be no one who was poor. Right? There was supposed to be no chronic poverty. And the reason why there was no, no poor is not only because people were supposed to show mercy to the poor, but because all of the laws were just and equitable. Right? Society itself was supposed to be um, so just that there was no poverty. The poverty would be eliminated. Right? I think this is really fascinating. So let, let's, let's look at this. First thing is um, Deuteronomy 14, which is, um, it talks about tithing. Okay? What's the purpose of tithing? Just as a, in case you guys don't know, tithing is where you give 10% of your income. Right? What's the purpose of tithing? Uh, Tommy, can I have you read that? At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithes of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the followers, and the widow who are within your towns, shall come and eat and be filled that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. Okay, so the purpose of the tithing was to give money and food to these sets of people, right? So I think it's very important to kind of break it down. First, we're supposed to give money to the Levites. Who are Levites? Huh? Yeah, they were the priestly class. Um, they were basically, we would call them in modern language, full-time ministry workers, right? And why, why do they need to give money and support to Levites? Because the Levites, received no land. So they were not farmers, right? So there was no way for them to like grow food and feed themselves and provide themselves. They had no way of, of providing for themselves because their job was 100% of their time was focused on ministry, being preachers, teaching the law, uh, ministering at the tabernacle. And so the purpose of the tithe was to feed these guys, right? Levites, but that was not the only purpose. What else? We're supposed to, with the tithe, Give to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. Now, that's interesting, right? So let's say immigrants, orphans, and widows. Okay? What do these four have in common? What do those four have in common? Yes! 
That's right. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, so these four sets of people cannot provide for themselves. And so the tithe, we tend to think of tithe, oh, we're supposed to give money to the religious workers. That's true, but only because they don't have a source of income. And then these other three categories, orphans, widows, and immigrants, they have limited sources of income. And so the tithe was also to provide for them. And so God created this whole structure where everyone was supposed to give up 10% of their income, and then that 10% is supposed to supply everyone who doesn't have enough to eat and, and to live on. Does that make sense? That was the purpose of the tithe. Okay? Imagine a society where that happens. Right? Let's go on to the next point, uh, the sabbatical year. Um, So we all know what the Sabbath is, right? Every seven days. There was also something called a sabbatical year, every seven years. And so something's supposed to happen every seven years. Uh, let's read it. Uh, Winnie, can I have you read it? You don't have to read the whole thing. I'll tell you when to stop. Okay. Verse 1. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner you may exact it, but whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. Okay, stop there. Okay, so here's the way um, the sabbatical year worked. Um, one of the ways that the poor are poor, I think this is such a sophisticated understanding by the Bible, the poor are poor because of crushing debts. Okay? And so uh, there are all these laws called usury laws where you're not supposed to charge exploitative rates. Right? You're not supposed to charge high interest when you lend to the poor. And more than that, every seven years, um, you're supposed to forgive the debt completely. Right? So, you know, you loan money to someone and you fully expect them to pay you back. And of course they expect to pay you back, right? But if they cannot pay you back in seven years, debt is forgiven. Right? That was the law in Israel. Um, and what that did was that got rid of something called generational poverty. Right? This is pretty amazing. Um, the way the Bible thinks of poverty is it's not just your own fault but it's your mother's fault, your father's fault, it's your grandfather's fault, right? Like, it, like something happens in, in three generations away from you, and then they're never able to climb out of poverty, and then it just cascades and cascades, and it carries down. And we actually see that, right? If we go to um, urban areas like East Oakland, um, you see people have been poor for down the generations. And because part, a lot of it is because of crushing debt. But every seven years, everyone's even Steven, all debt is forgiven, right? And what if, ah, okay, now imagine you're living this time and you say, oh, I have a lot of money to loan. Every seven years, I may not see that money. I'm not gonna loan, right? Or I'm only gonna loan to people I know for sure is gonna pay me back. I'm certainly not gonna loan to someone who is poor. This is what the Bible says. Uh, verse seven, can I have uh, Harry read that? Among you, one of your brothers should become poor in, in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. 
but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Okay, so what does the law say? The law says you cannot withhold a loan. If you see a brother in need and he needs a loan, you loan him. And I think it's really interesting because it doesn't say you're supposed to give him money, right? You're supposed to loan him money. And so what, what, what's the reason for loaning? It's because you're supposed to help the poor become self-sufficient. Okay? That's what they really need. They need a loan, right? And the purpose of the loan is to help them get back on their feet so that they can provide for themselves. You know, maybe they have a farm and then they got wiped out. All their, I don't know what they had, like horses and oxen equipment got destroyed. You give them a loan so they can get back on, on their feet. But if that loan, in the end, they can't repay it, they're going to be crushed by that debt. You have to forgive the debt every seven years. Right? That's amazing. And what does that mean? Can you imagine a society like that? That's why in verse 4 it says, there will be no poor among you. The, the, the reality of the Old Testament laws is that if everyone followed it, poverty would be, chronic poverty would be completely eliminated. There would be occasional poverty, right? Because of certain circumstances. But there's no such thing as chronic poverty. Right? Let's go on to the next one. Um, turn the page. Leviticus 25, year of Jubilee. Okay. Who knows what the year of Jubilee is? Who knows who's familiar? Anyone? No? Okay. So the year of Jubilee is kind of building on top of the sabbatical year. So every seven years, all debts are forgiven, right? Every seventh seven years, what is that? Someone did a quick math for me. 49 years. The next year is called the year of Jubilee. So this is every 50th year. Okay, and so um, every 50th year, not only would it be a year, a sabbatical year, all debts are forgiven, but there's something else on top of that, which is all land was to be returned back to its original owners. All right, so let's read that, okay, because it's fascinating. Um, we'll just read the first paragraph. Meredith, can I have you read it? You should count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall be 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all of your land. And you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, when each of you shall return to his property, and each of you shall return to his land. Okay, so this is the way it was, alright? At the very beginning, when God gave his people the land of Israel, the promised land, he allocated a plot of land to every single family except to the Levites, right? Who were the full-time ministry right? So what you had was let's say this is this was a plot of land and this was the Jones's property, right? I'm using American names. I, I don't know what Hebrew last names would be. Or, okay, and this is like, you know, the Kims live here, right? And then this is like the Wangs live here, okay? And, um, and so what happens is that's their plot of land, and it was perfectly apportioned so that that land provides for that family, right? So that they would never go hungry. So that if they farm the land, they'll, be, they'll never be without. But let's say something happens, and I don't know, there's some battle happens over the Wang land, 
and everything is destroyed, and so they, they go into poverty. And they don't have enough money, so they, they borrow money, but that's still not enough, so what they do is they sell their land, right? They sell this portion of the land to the Kims, right? And so the Kims take over the land, right? But you can imagine that when you sell land, what does that mean? It means that you're permanently going to be poorer as a result, right? And so what God says in the law is every 50th year, no matter, no matter what, all the land is to be returned back to the original owners. Even if the, this family were to sell all of their land and they become completely poor and without land, that land originally would come back. There's no such thing as transferring ownership on a permanent basis. Does that make sense? And so the law was designed to eliminate chronic poverty. There's no such thing as generational poverty. All the land would be returned back to its original owners. <clears throat> All right, and so, um, and so let's, let's, uh, let's go on, right? Um, read, let's read verses 23 to 25. Um, can I have Rachel read it? What does perpetuity mean? Anyone? Yeah, right? So you're never supposed to land, you're never supposed to sell the land forever. Anytime you sell the land, it's really, you should think of it as a loan, right? So the Wangs sell this portion of the land to the Kims. At any moment, if, a, if someone comes along for the Wangs, and you know, maybe Wangs have like a distant cousin, right? Uh, who lives far away, and he's like, I will buy the land back for you. Then the Kims, will ha they have to return the land for that price. And so in essence, it's, it's basically a loan with collateral. And if for some reason the Wings never can find someone to redeem the land for them, the land goes back to them anyways after 50 years. Okay? And so who is this person? Do you, do you know it's, it's actually a, a, a word? Who is this person who can buy back the land? Do you guys remember? There's a specific word for it. It's called the kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer. Kinsman just means relative, right? Or your kin, your family. Okay? Um, finally, let's go to the next one, which is gleaning laws. Um, who can I have? Clarence. Page two, second uh, verse, Leviticus 19. Can you read the gleaning laws? Can you read the harvest of your land? You shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vine or bear. Uh, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes after your vine. You shall even for the forest and so your eyes All right. So imagine this is, this is your plot of land, right? And you know. You grow, I don't know what you grow, oat and wheat or whatever. You are only supposed to harvest this portion. Any edge land, you're supposed to leave unharvested. And then what happens is people who are poor in that society, the immigrants, the widows, the sojourners, 
they would go and they would harvest the food for themselves. And I think it's really interesting. The law doesn't say, go ahead and harvest all your food and then hand food to the poor. The law says, give the poor a chance to earn their own income. Does that make sense? You're supposed to create opportunities for them to provide for themselves by doing the hard work of gleaning the, the food, right? Because that takes sweat, that's work. In other words, we're not supposed to just give the poor money, we're supposed to help the poor provide for themselves by leaving the edges of our field empty, right? I think this is so fascinating and so deep. The purpose of the law is to eliminate poverty, but, but also to, to give them a means to be self-sufficient. And actually, this, this gleaning law becomes a huge factor in a story in the Bible. Do you guys remember what story? Ruth. Ruth, that's right. Do you guys remember the story of Ruth and Naomi? Okay. Naomi is what? A widow. And Ruth is also a widow. So you got two poor women. And in a society run by men, two women by themselves are poor. And so what do they do? They go to a field, Ruth goes, because she's still young and healthy, and she gleans from the field. And do you remember which field she gleans from? Boaz. Boaz, right? You know why? Because Boaz is a godly man. He's a godly man, and he obeys the law. And so he has his fields, and he leaves the edges alone. And then Ruth comes, and she gleans from them. And then he sees her, and then you know the whole story, right? That he actually ends up being a kinsman redeemer and he saves the family, right? And they get married. Um, and so that's the Old Testament law is designed to eliminate poverty, um, not just as a matter of mercy, but as a matter of justice. Right? Because the poor deserve these things, right? It's their right. Is there any questions or any comments? Any thoughts? Anyone? I think it's, you know, as I was studying this, it, it, uh, it's really impactful, you know, because um, God so loves the poor that the very laws were designed to help the poor. Okay, let's go to point three. Just like Old Testament Israel, the New Testament church is to be a community where people share and there is no poverty, okay? Now some of you might say, oh, but that's Old Testament Israel. This is the New Testament church, all right? Things are different. Oh, no, they're not, right? We have to remember, again, that Israel and the church are one people, okay? And so the church was supposed to fulfill what Israel is supposed to be. And in fact, you know, as you can expect, Israel broke the law. They disobeyed the covenant. And so all of these gleaning laws, the year of Jubilee, they didn't keep it. They violated it, right? Only like a few godly men like Boaz would keep the law. And so what, it, what the church did was the church fulfilled what Israel was supposed to do. And so in Acts chapter 4, I want you to see like the pregnant language, you know. It, 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 it echoes all the laws in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. The church did what, the, what Israel was supposed to be. Right, so let's read Acts chapter 4. Um, can I have Tommy read that for us? Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that. Any of the things that belong to him was his own, but they had everything in common. You know, with this great power, the apostles were given their testimony. So the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, complete grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them. 
uh, our houses sold and brought uh, the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as they had need. Right? So the church practiced the justice laws in the Old Testament. No one thought of their property as their own, but if anyone had any need, they extended aid and help freely. So that, what an amazing statement, right? In verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. No one suffered chronic poverty, right? That's not to say that there was no such thing as those who were rich and those who had less, um, because we, we read about in the early church that there were rich there were rich Christians, but it means that there was no Christian who went without. There was no Christian who went hungry, because they shared. Okay, let's read Second um, Corinthians. Second Corinthians um, is interesting. It's something called the the Jerusalem Collection. Has anyone heard of this? It's actually a big thing in Paul's letters, especially um. Second Corinthians, and then uh, Book of Acts. Does anyone know what the Jerusalem collection was? Bible quiz time. Anyone? Okay. So what the Jerusalem co- collection was is um, in the Book of Acts. Uh, there's this moment in, in I believe it's Antioch, where the prophet Agabus is able to see that there's going to be an enormous famine in the land, right? And then. Um, the poorest church by far in all of the churches in the New Testament world was Jerusalem. You know, they had enormous amounts of widows and just poor people, partly because Jerusalem was a poor city relative to other Greek cities, uh, but also because Jerusalem was a place that attracted all of these pilgrims to come to be at the temple, right? So Jerusalem, the Jerusalem church had enormous numbers of poor people. And so what the church decided, and especially spearheaded by the Apostle Paul, is that the richer churches in the, in the Greek lands, right? Churches like the church in Corinth, the church um, in Rome, and everyone. He would gather up their offering, their love offering, and take it to Jerusalem and give them the money. Okay? And so he's writing to the church at Corinth and he's trying to encourage them to give to this Jerusalem collection. Right? And so let's read, read the logic, read the kind of the motivation that he gives us. Can I have uh, Meredith read Second Corinthians? I, I do not mean that others should be eased and you, and you burdened, but that is a matter of fairness. Your abundance at the present time should supply their need, and that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. All right, so what does Paul say? Does Paul say, give to the Jerusalem collection because you need to have mercy on them? Yes, he does say that actually later on. But what does he say? As a matter of fairness. Or another word would be justice. Okay? He says, do it as a matter of fairness. Because the Jerusalem church is poor, you are rich, that is not fair. That's not equitable. Um, and then he quotes Exodus 16, right? Uh, I actually preached on this once. Exodus, Exodus 16, which is the story of manna. Do you guys remember um, in the story of the manna when Israel received manna, um, the specific rules that happened with manna? Do you guys remember? What can you remember? Uh, not exactly. Very close, though. What 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 happened is they were supposed to gather um, 
the manna. And some could gather a lot. And some, I don't know, maybe some were like weak and they're like, they went out and they could only gather a little, right? And then whoever could gather a lot was supposed to give to whoever could only gather a little. And then, and then they were supposed to share in that way. And I think that is deep, deep, deep theology. Because you know what that's telling us? It's telling us that manna or any other resource like money or whatever is a gift from God, right? They didn't earn the manna. And some people have higher ability to gather than other people, right? Some people have more uh, strength or training or, or, or education to be able to gather a lot of manna, but it doesn't matter because you're supposed to share that manna with those who are only able to gather a little. And in that way, everyone has enough. And, and, and if you hoard the manna, if you keep more manna than you can eat, what would, what would happen to that manna? Do you guys remember? Huh? It would spoil. It would rot. You're not supposed to hoard. And so Paul quotes Exodus 16 and says it's a matter of fairness. Whoever gathers much should share with those who gather little. And in that way, it's fair. It's like Exodus 16. It's like matter. That's an amazing example and, and, and sort of argument, right? Um, are there any questions about that? Are we feeling a little convicted? Are we feeling, you know, the pierce, piercing stab of the Bible? Um, there's only a little bit of time, so let me just do point number four, and then I'll just summarize the rest. Um, you can read it on your own. So point number four is um, who is supposed to do mercy and justice ministry, right? And so we said that, you know, um, it's not just mercy ministry, but it's also something called Uh, social justice, right? And that word social justice comes from the Bible, right? From the Old Testament concept. All right, so um, there's something called the division of labor in the church, okay? So let's find out what that division of labor is. Let's read uh, Acts 6. Oh, who can I pick on? Eric. Can I have you read just verse 1 and then I want to have you pause there. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Okay, stop there. The daily distribution. Who knows what that is all about? What's a daily distribution? What's going on? Alright, so what, what was going on is that the Jerusalem church from the very beginning was living out the fulfillment of the laws in Israel and they were supplying all the poor, right? They're helping the poor, particularly the widows. There was a lot of widows in Jerusalem. And what happened was there were two sets of people, the Hellenists and the Hebrews. Does anyone know who those two sets of people were? They were both Jews. But who were the Hellenists and who were the Hebrews? Do you know, Eric? The Jews who speak Greek are the, the, Hellenists. the Hellenists. And then the Jews who speak Aramaic or Jewish, but really more Aramaic, are Hebrews. So they, it's two sets of people who um, they, set, they speak different language, they have different culture. You know, it's kind of like um, ABCs who grew up in America and then Chinese people from like Hong Kong, right? 
It's like your same ethnicity, but different culture, right? Different language. And so can you imagine these two, it's a bicultural, bilingual church, amazing, right? But there's conflict. And the Hellenists, the, the, the Jews who spoke Greek, felt like they were getting the short end of the stick. They felt like they weren't getting a fair distribution, right? And so they decided, the church got together and said, let's figure this out. Let's solve this problem. So this is what they did. Verse 2, can I have you read Eric? And then there's a lot of names, but um, try to muddle through. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Okay, uh, stop there. Okay, so this is what the apostles said. All right, they said, listen, we're bad at distributing bread. Not so much bad, but look, we're focused on preaching and prayer. And so what we need is we need specialists. Right? We need seven, seven guys who are going to be focused on distributing the daily bread to make sure it's a fair distribution. Right? And so who are these seven? These are deacons. Okay? And so what this tells us is that this is the division of labor in the church. Elders preach, teach, and govern the church. Deacons do mercy ministry. Does that make sense? They're specialists. Because if elders had to do mercy ministry and teach and preach and govern, you would have problems, right? They, they just don't have enough time. They don't have enough resources. So deacons are specialists. But notice that they're ordained, right? They're, they're church officers, just like elders. Because let's read on. Can, can, you, um, can you read it, Eric? And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prosperous, and Nicanor, and Timo, and Parmenet, Parmenas, and Nicodemus, a proselyte of Antioch. There they sat before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Yeah, they prayed and laid their hands on them, right? Do you guys remember when I was ordained? pray and lay their hands on me. And so we are to pray and lay our hands on these deacons. Um, good job, by the way, reading the names. And uh, these seven deacons, who by the way, if you, if, if, if you know something about the language, these are seven Greek names. So they chose seven Hellenists to make it fair. Um, and they're the deacons, and their job, was to, their job was to focus on mercy ministry. Their job was to distribute the bread to the widows. That's their job. And uh, let me just say this as a kind of editorial. Um, I think there's a little bit of confusion about these church offices in the church today. So that you have situations where you have a board of deacons and they're governing the church. They're deciding, they're making governing decisions. I, I, I will say this very gently because you know it's a relatively minor matter, but that's not their job. The job of the deacons is to focus on mercy and the job of the elders is to focus on, as the apostle said, teaching, preaching, and praying. Does that make sense? Okay, um, let me quickly summarize the next verses because we're not going to read through them. But um, the other thing is mercy, ministry is gospel reenactment. And I just want to read to you 2 Corinthians 8, 9, uh, the last verse there in 2 Corinthians. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. You know, it's an amazing thing. The gospel is Jesus became poor so that we might become rich. And therefore, when we do that to others, when we impoverish ourselves, 
to support and help the poor, we're re-dramatizing, replaying the gospel to them, okay? And finally, point six, God identifies with the poor. Let me just read to you this verse, because this is, this is so amazing. Proverbs 19, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. What you do to the poor, you do to God, because God identifies with the poor. He loves the poor. He works in and through the poor. And, it, and if you love God, if you want to be on board with God's mission, you will be for the poor and you will love the poor. This is why Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was born a poor person. He was in a poor family. He was born in a manger. You know, God became poor to identify with the poor, and so we should do the same. All right, let's pray. Actually, let me, I mean, if there's a quick question, I always do this, I know. Question, but not really. But <laughs> does anyone have questions or comments or thoughts? Well, I'm sure one of the questions that might come up is, are we supposed to do this with politics, right? Like, are we supposed to do this with our laws? Um, what does this look like? Which political party does it look like the most? Democrats, right? Okay, so is, 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 should we be all Democrats, right? And, you know, for high taxation and redistribution of wealth? My answer to that is, um, I don't think the Bible says either way. And if you choose the, po the path of government policy, it's not illegitimate. Okay, so you can, you, can, you, can you can think of social justice and mercy in terms of government laws, and I think that's fine. Or you could say that's not government's job, it should be done through private means, through charities, and through churches. I think that's also a legitimate way. So I'm basically saying, I'm not deciding, right? You can be a Republican, you can be a Democrat, and it doesn't matter. Both parties, by the way, have it wrong on different areas, and so there's no really godly party, you know? Um, but, uh, but you can do it through government policy, it's not wrong, and you can do it through private charity and churches, that's not wrong either. Okay, so let's leave it at that. Let's all agree to disagree. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you so much for this amazing vision that you give us, that there is to be no poor and needy among us. We pray that uh, we will live this out but to be honest, Lord, we, we don't know how. We don't know the practicalities of it. And so we pray that you would help us in our own mercy ministries and to give us a heart and to give us wisdom on how to do this and to live it out and to live out the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name.